Welcome to Chi Alpha at the University of Virginia. This podcast is a collection of messages designed to help you grow in our three anchors of real devotional life, real community, and real responsibility. We hope that you enjoy this message and that it encourages you in your spiritual growth. Friends, a guy named Judas. And Judas is going to betray him. The result is is that Jesus will be uh, imprisoned, he will be beaten, he will be tortured, he will eventually be put up on a cross, and he will die. He will not stay dead, he will be raised from the dead, because he will purchase our salvation through his resurrection. And he is alive, the Bible tells us, sitting at the right hand of God, waiting to come back and gather his family to him. But in this moment, what we are reading is three stories that Jesus tells to his disciples, and I believe it's important for us to pay attention because usually the last words people say are like the most important. When my, my kids like learn to drive, I've got a 20-year-old and a 17-year-old, when they learn to drive and they get in the car and after I've kind of, they got their permits, they got their license and the last thing I say to them is like, I, I don't know what else to say, but listen to this, right? You guys know what I'm talking about? It's usually these two words, don't die, all right? We've got this motto in our, in our home, like I'm not a safety-ism kind of person. I believe that, I know, right? <laughs> Big shock. <laughs> Sorry. Um, not really. But anyway, um, so I... I started to notice that I would say things like, be safe. And I started to notice my kids being super cautious. And I was like rechecking, going, wait a second, is, is safety the most important thing? And so we kind of got this new motto. It's, uh, we say, don't be safe, be strong, right? Some of you are gonna be like, yeah, I dig that. And some of you are like, that guy is nuts. Um, and so it, it's okay, you don't have to agree with me. That's, that's for free. Um, I don't know why we're we're talking about this right now, other than um, Jesus' last words. See, there we are. Jesus' last words. (laughs) I'm glad you're with me this morning. All right. Jesus' last words are important, and the things that he's telling his disciples, they reveal something about his concerns for them. So you guys get what I'm saying? So in Matthew 25, he tells three stories, three parables And I believe each of these parables reveals something he wants for his disciples. The the friends that he has spent his life with and his ultimate goal for them is what? That they would be with him in eternity. And so as he's about to face the cross, as he's about to leave them behind, I think that these stories, if we look at them not from like a really close inspection with a microscope, but instead from like a 10,000 foot view, we can grasp that the big idea concerns for his friends. And as we leave this place, I think that there is some application for our lives. As we go back to our Chi Alpha communities and begin to live out what it means to be a follower of Jesus, I think we need to remember the concerns that Christ has for us. You guys with me? Okay. So we're going to look at these three concerns. We're going to do it in reverse order. And so we're going to go to Matthew chapter 25. We'll read each story at a time, and then I'll give you some thoughts and we'll move on. All right. So Matthew chapter 25, we're going to go to verse 31 to 40. This is just another little tidbit. As you discover God's word, um, 
as you read it, sometimes if you change up the order or the way that you look at the text, you're able to see things that you may not have seen before. So some of us read a couple chapters a day. I'm in a plan right now where I'm trying to read the Bible, the entire Bible, in 60 days as fast as I can, right? Just go through it. At times in the recent past, I read it backwards. You're like, wait, what? Not like literally backwards. I read it like paragraph from paragraph backwards, trying to see it in a different way and understanding what's going on. So just kind of tuck those things away. This book is alive, and it speaks to us. All right, so Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Wait, this is maybe not right. Yes, it is, all right. Before him, (laughs) I was like, wait a second. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left, Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of this world. Let's go to the next one. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty, and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger, and welcome you, or naked, and clothe you? And when did we see you sick, or in prison, and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to the one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So here is the big takeaway, the big idea in this moment is what I would, the concern of Christ is simply this. He's looking at his disciples. He tells this story about sheeps and goats, and he wants them to understand that it's critically important that if they're going to make it into eternity to be with him, they must be authentic. They must be authentic. Are you guys familiar with like currency, like dollars? You know what I'm talking about? $100 bill. When we lived in Asia, uh, I discovered that the U.S. currency is actually the most prevalent monetary thing in the world. Like, it's all over the world. U.S. dollars can be found in literally every country, and it's used to buy things. And the nation we were in uh, was their dollar was basically 5,000, well, it was 8,000 to 1 when we first got there. So 8,000 of that monetary system was $1, which meant that U.S. dollars had an incredible amount of value, right? But that the $100 bill was used all the time to purchase things because you literally would have to walk around with a wheelbarrow to buy like a car, right? You know what I'm talking about? And so the $100 bill was all over the place and it was copied and counterfeited all the time because you live in a nation where the U.S. dollar is not normal, right? It's not the normal currency. It gets counterfeited. And so I began to become very aware when I lived overseas to pay attention to details of what a U.S. dollar looked like. And the U.S. Department of Treasury has really some basic ideas. They call it the the tilt, the touch, and the look through method when it comes to U.S. currency. So you're, you're tilting it and you're looking at it for the right, uh, I don't know, reflections on the different bars. You're touching it, you're feeling the paper, and you're looking through it to see the different watermarks. But when someone is being trained to inspect counterfeit money, 
they don't teach them about what a counterfeit is. All they do is they sit them in rooms for eight to 10 hours a day and they get to handle U.S. currency. They touch it, they feel it, they tilt it, they look through it. They touch it, they tilt it, they look through it. They touch it, they tilt it, they look through it. For hours and hours and hours and hours and a few days into their training, someone slips a counterfeit bill into their stack that they're evaluating and at some point that person comes to that bill and they look at it and they touch it and they tilt it and they look through it and they're like, I don't know why, but this is not right. This just isn't what I know it should be. Jesus is looking at his disciples and he's talking about these two common creatures in the world, sheep and goats. Would you need to understand? Yes, let's look at these two little guys. Don't they look delicious? <laughs> I totally couldn't help. I'm so sorry. Um, so if you are not growing up on a farm and you saw the animal on the left, you would likely look at it and say, that is a sheep. That's a baby lamb. But that is not a baby lamb. That is a goat. And goats are radically different from sheep. Like, they're not the same animal, even though they may look alike, even though they may be the same color, the same structure, four legs, a tail, two ears, they're not the same. You see, sheep flock together and they need community. Goats are independent and run by themselves. Sheep are led and compelled by love. They follow their shepherd. Goats have to be driven with a stick and guilt and manipulation. Jesus was telling his disciples how to live authentic lives in here. He's saying authentic Christians are saved by faith, but their faith is perme it permeates their lives, their character, and it's on display through their actions. And authentic Christians choose to live out the love and the kindness of God that they have experienced when there, is, when there isn't anything to be gained. In Luke 6, to 45, Jesus says, for every tree is known by its fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they gather grapes from bramble bushes. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of his heart, his mouth speaks. In James 2, it says, so also faith by itself it does not, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You see, authentic Christianity demands that you live like a sheep. It demands that you live it out. Part of being a Christian is part of being a community. It's not being a goat. You cannot be independent and separate from the family of God. When we were in Asia um, as world missionaries, we started to see God do some miraculous things and people were getting saved and disciples were being made and, and it was this beautiful moment. But I started to be like taken over by fear that our disciples were not gonna stay with Jesus. I don't know if any small group leaders or pastors, cow pastors have ever wrestled with this. You're like, you start to have, I don't know, it's not insecurity, but you're like, yeah, we'll see. You guys ever said that? We'll see if they make it. We'll see if they're authentic. 
And I went to one of my mentor pastors, my mentor missionaries over in the field, and I started to describe some of this fear. Like, I don't know if they're going to survive. I don't know if they're going to get it. And he looks at me and he says, Paul, if God can save them, he can keep them. If God can save them, he can keep them. And so our first disciple, his name was Dang. He was 17 years old. He was a kid on the street with no home. He ended up coming into our family and living with us. I married him. They had kids. Like, it's just this whole thing. I don't have to tell the story. But Dang, after our first term of being overseas, had chosen to follow Jesus. He was leading what we would call a house church or a small group community up in this northern village community where we had moved, and he was leading it while we were gone. And I get this notice from one of our other disciples that Dang and two other of our friends had been taken by the government. You see, we were working in a country that was communist, it was closed, it was persecuted. Christians were considered uh, basically people that betrayed their government and were traitors to their community and to their people. And so I get these notification that they're just gone, have no idea where they're at. The word is, is that they've been grabbed by the government and taken to what we would refer to as a re-education camp. And obviously, we're, we're here, we're hanging out in Michigan, and I'm going, oh, Lord Jesus, we're praying, we're talking to friends, we're trying to figure out what we can do, but there's really nothing we can do. Three months later, I get notification from my friend Dang, and he gives me a call, and he basically begins to tell me this story. He said, Paul, three months ago, they came and they grabbed us, and they took us to this re-education camp, and he said, for three months... They basically yelled and screamed at us. Every morning, they had us in this one big room with about 100 other people, and they would berate us, and they would ask, they would yell at us and tell us that we were traitors and that we needed to reject Christianity. And at the end of every morning, when the guy was done yelling, he would come out with a piece of paper, and he would slam it down in front of us and say, if you want to leave this place, all you have to do is sign your name to reject the idea that you're a Christian. All you have to do is put your name on this piece of paper that says you're not going to follow Jesus anymore. Day after day after day. He told me that as the, after three months of this going on and water being restricted and food being restricted and just the constant uh, mental beratement, one of the guys that came in came in and he said, hey, as he's yelling at him, I hear that you Christians, you have different songs. I hear that you don't sing our songs, that you're not loyal to our culture and our, to our community. You've written your own music. Why don't you sing your music so that I can understand why in the world you would be traitors to your country? Dang looked at me and, or over the phone. He said, Paul, we didn't just sing our songs. We worship so that they might know Jesus. The next day, the same guy comes in and he starts berating him and yelling at him and he he says essentially this, he goes, <coughs> excuse me, he says, I hear that you Christians, you have different stories, that you have a different history. I want to hear your stories, I want to hear your history, I want to understand why you would betray your people. And Dang said, Paul, we didn't just tell him the stories of the Bible, we preached to him so that he might know Jesus. After another few days of this treatment and beratement, essentially this guy walks in, he slams down the paper and says, I know none of you are going to sign this paper, and we're going to let you go today, but if you tell anybody about Jesus, you're going to end up right back here. And he set them free. A few weeks later, after that initial phone call was Christmas, 
Dane called me after Christmas. I said, how was the Christmas celebration? He goes, it was amazing. We had 120 people in your house. I'm like, excuse me? He goes, the whole village heard what was happening and they wanted to know what was going on in our lives and now we've got people choosing to follow Jesus because of that. Students, listen. I understand what it means to be hesitant to, be, to display the fact that you're walking with Jesus. I understand the concern, both physical and psychological, of brandishing the flag that I am a child of God. But authentic Christianity does not hide your identity. Listen to this. I believe and love me for this. Hear this. Just love me for it. I believe that sheep will oftentimes run with goats. You ever seen that? And that what I determined from that is that when you're a sheep and you're running with goats, you're choosing to run from your community and rejecting your identity. But I also believe that there are goats that sometimes run with sheep. And you're trying to hide your identity in community. Here's the thing, guys. Jesus wants us all to be sheep. He wants us all to be sheep. Let's move on. Um, the second concern, we're going to read the next story. The second concern that Jesus has for his disciples is found in verses 14 to 28. Chapter 24, 14 to 28. 25, there it is, 14 to 28, sorry. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. For one, he gave ten, five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each one according to his ability. Then he went away, and he who had received his five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled according with them, and he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered me to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours, but his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scatter no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the 10 talents. For to everyone who has will be given more and he who will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
We don't have time to dig into the entirety of this parable. It is full of so many biblical and spiritual truths. But I want to grab, again, from a a 10,000-foot view, why is Jesus telling this story to his disciples? And it's simply this concern. Not only does he want them to be authentic, but he wants them to be a steward of what God has given them. A steward of what God has given them. Listen, you, again, need to understand a little bit of the context, but in this is normal in this time of history in the world. Essentially, uh, landowners or people of wealth would go on long trips. They wouldn't get on a plane. They may be gone for years at a time, and they would entrust their resources to stewards, to people that they believed would be able to take care of their property. And when they came back, they would expect that that opportunity, those resources would have been leveraged, not just so those individuals would have had life and a salary and to be able to eat, but that the greater estate would have grown. So there's six truths I want you to understand from this text that I'm just going to kind of bullet at you as fast as I can. The first truth from this story that you need to grab hold of is that you belong to God, period. These stewards, these servants were belonged to their master. And some of us in this room love the idea of Jesus as a savior. Like, who doesn't love that idea? But the Bible doesn't say he's your savior. It says he's your Lord and your savior. And you cannot have a savior without Jesus also being your Lord. Which means you are his servant. You belong to him. The Bible says that he literally purchased us with the price of his life. You belong to God. The second one is is that all you have also belongs to God. Number three, some have been given more than others. This is a reality, a truth in this world. You will just have to accept the fact that some have been given more than others. But this is what's really interesting, and we don't have time to break it all down, but the monetary value of those talents that were given were essentially $2,800,000 and $400,000. So if someone walked up to you and handed you $400,000, would you feel that you were being gypped? They're all different, but they're all generous. They're all different, but they're all generous. Some have been given more, some have been given less, but God's gifts is generosity. Truth number four, what you have been given is not up to you. You do not get to determine the family you were born in, the upbringing that you were given, the education that you have. I can tell that if you're in the room today, you are in the top 0.5% of the world because you have a college education, a phone in your pocket, a laptop to do your schoolwork. Like, listen, the rest of the world does not live this way. So you've been given a lot. Truth number five, what you do with what you have been given is up to you. And your perspective of God will likely affect what you do with what you've been given. Do we see God as a hard man with unfair and unrealistic expectations? Or do we eagerly wait for Christ as a good and loving, full of grace, full of mercy, full of kindness and joy and peace as a father that we can basically desire him to come home to? And our life is to be invested, not wasted or protected. Your life 
is not to be protected. Hear that. Any, I mean, I, I could just, this is like a rabbit trail for me, but any investor will tell you, any investor will tell you, yeah, you can stick your money in the bank and earn that whatever percentage, but if you're actually gonna generate wealth and meaning in your investment, it has to be invested well. And guys, there's risk. There's risk. It's just part of it. And that risk that's called faith, it's called faith. Overcoming risk is called faith. And we can have faith in the identity of God that our lives can be trusted with him. Truth number six, you only get one life to steward. Being handed $2,800,000 or $400,000 is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. You get one life to steward. And so you have to ask yourself, if Jesus is looking at his disciples and he's concerned that they make it and end up in eternity with them, he's challenging them, don't just make it here by yourself. Steward your life in such a way that it begins to bring others and those around you with you so that you're not here alone with me, but that the world joins you in this place with me. Will we steward our life for the benefit of God? Or we'd be like that guy that shoves our talent in the ground and says, I knew you were a, a mean God, and I'm not going to do anything to help. Will we steward our life to obey and make God known? Um, I told you guys I had was a, uh, I'm going to tell you one story. We've got to get to the last point. Keep moving forward. Um, I, I love the, the idea that, well, not the, the idea. I loved my year as a CMIT um, at Sam Houston State in Texas, right? I told you last night, I'm, I think I'm still the oldest. I like wear that badge proudly. Like I'm the old guy that didn't belong and I got engrafted into this family. Like I'm part of this because of that experience. Um, I was thinking about this. I wanted to share a story about trying to steward my life. And one of the ones that popped forward was one of those not so great moments when I got called on the carpet. Anybody ever been like called out like, hey, you're not doing so hot. You should maybe live a little bit different. Well, I'm the only one. All right. So um, I'm in the CMIT at Sam Houston, and I'm obviously not the normal CMIT. I've uh, been overseas. I pastored a local church. I got four kids. And while we were there, we were preparing to pioneer in Alaska. And so a lot of my time was on the campus, uh, serving in resources, helping out here and there. But then on the weekends, I would hop on a plane and I'd travel the country and I'd speak and talk about what God wanted to do in Alaska. And after the first semester, I, I had a pastoral, uh, what do they call those? Pastoral evaluation. Thank you, all my CMIT directors in the room. And I sat down with my pastor that was overseeing my my direction in the CMIT, and he basically called me out. And he started to say, he basically asked this one question. He goes, Paul, are, are you actually going to make an investment here while you're a CMIT? And I was like, excuse me? Uh, you know, I'm cleaning the toilets, I'm going on campus, I'm working contact table, right? I'm teaching some of your CMIT classes. I'm doing anything and everything I can to bless this community. And he goes, yeah, you're, you're doing good. 
But Paul, will anybody know Jesus because you were here this year? And I'll be honest, guys, inside my spirit rose up. My pride, I got angry. And I looked at my pastor and I said, do you really think that you know the direction of the the purpose and the direction of my life more than what God has spoken to me? And with all the confidence in the world, he looked at me and he said, for this moment, yeah. I walked home, I was so mad. I griped at my wife. I was like, how dare they? I've left Asia, I'm here. I'm doing the CMIT, I'm doing all this thing. And, and this idea that somehow I was sacrificing in this moment, not understanding that I was not stewarding the year that I'd been given on the campus to make a difference in the kingdom of God. Can I just give a shout out to a couple people here? Uh, Nicole Cedillo and Faith Robinson. So Nicole was my CMIT administrator, right? And Faith was our CMIT director. Um, Faith, I'm sorry. I love you guys. So grateful for the way you had patience and invested in our family. Um, So the ask from my pastor was this. I want you to cancel all of your trips and your speaking engagements. I'm like, excuse me? I'm like, some of these have been booked for over a year, guys. And he's like, I want you to, will you do it? I went home, talked to my wife, gripe, 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 took a couple days, talked to Jesus finally, and Jesus said, you should, and I said, oh, dear God. So I hung up, called all my friends that I'm supposed to go speak to, hung down, did that, and I found myself stuck on the campus of Sam Houston with nothing to do. Like, and so one afternoon, I'm sitting on this wall in the mall, like there's this open courtyard on the campus, and I'm sitting on the wall. And this wall is there, and I've got my cowboy boots on, and I'm, because, hey, you got to be where you be. And so I'm banging my boots up against the back of this wall, right? And, and I'm just watching people walk by. And as they go by, I'm asking this simple question, Jesus, do you want to talk, me to talk to them? Guys, can I just ask you this? I was asked this question yesterday. I have to tell you this. I was asked this question yesterday. Like, how do you broach some of these conversations or interactions with people? And if you get up in the morning in your devotions and say, Jesus, will you give me an opportunity to talk to someone about, me t- about you today? That will happen. You just... Like, the Lord does it. And so I'm banging my boots up against this wall, and I'm saying, Lord, there's literally hundreds of students going by. I'm going, who do you want me to talk to? And this guy catches my eye. And he catches my eye because genuinely and honestly and lovingly, he looked like a Neanderthal. All right, he was disheveled. His clothes were undone. He probably hadn't bathed in a while. Some of you need to take a minute and listen here. He needed to shave and trim his beard, right? And as he walked by, it was like the Lord said, talk to him. And I was like so stunned and so shocked. I just sat there and he walked by. And I was immediately grieved, immediately. And I was like, Lord Jesus, if you would just give me another chance. And I'm not kidding. He turned around and he walked back. And I was like totally dumbstruck. I'm like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? I have no reason to talk to this young kid. Like, And I literally yell out across the yard, hey, dude, nice beard. That's my pickup line. (laughs) He stops. I say, you want to get a Coke? He goes, sure. (laughs) Literally what I said. A 35-year-old man sitting in the middle of a university yelling at an 18-year-old saying, hey, you want to get a drink together? 
And he says, okay. I've got other stories about driving around in our family minivan with a microphone saying, hey, we're going to a party, you wanna come? And people getting in the van. <laughs> like ridiculousness. Sam Houston is a special place, guys. So we don't have time to tell the whole story, but I discovered really quickly, uh, his young man, the name was Zach, he was very far from God. Uh, started to build a relationship with him. One of our key moments was, I discovered he loved to play video games. I'm like, just not that guy. But uh, in one of our conversations, he laments that his video game system broke and it was like, brought him to tears. And I looked at one of my other guys, or small group leader guys that I was working with and I say, his name was Drew Disney. And I said, Drew, hey, what if we went to like a pawn shop and bought him one of these systems and we showed up at the cat, uh, what do they call it, cat cab, cat cub, cat, what is, someone help me. Whatever. And, <laughs> and I literally showed up with a brown bag with some game system in it and I set it there and I was like, hey dude, this is the system and I thought maybe sometime we could go play video games. And he looks at me and goes, ah, oh, thanks. And like, he was like really touched. He was like, you can't come over to my place. Uh, I got too much porn running around. And I was like, okay, we got new prayer points. All right, let's go. Um, but here's the deal. Zach was into heavy metal. He met this guy, uh, Drew Disney, and connected him with, who was a small group leader who was also into heavy metal. And I split after about two months of knowing this young man. And all of a sudden, Drew Disney started to pour into this young man's life for two years. He invested in Zach's life. And I remember being up in Alaska, and on a monthly or bi-monthly basis, I'd shoot a text to, to Drew and just say, hey, how's Zach doing? I'm praying for him. And it took two more years before Zach made a decision to follow Jesus. But I can tell you today that my time at Sam Houston mattered. It wasn't, didn't just teach some classes. I didn't just clean some toilets or move some chairs. I didn't just do contact table. There's someone that's in the kingdom of God today because I was willing to step back and recognize that I needed to steward my life for the kingdom of God. Guys, you have the same opportunity every day. All we have to do is wake up in the morning and say, Jesus, who do you want me to talk to today? All right, I gotta keep going. You guys with me? Come on. Oh, all right. So how do you steward your life? I'm gonna just throw some of these things at you real quick. Uh, how about participating and investing in your small group? If you're not a small group leader, you can actually be a blessing to your small group. Show up on time. Have good things to talk about. Do your devotions, right? Some of your small group leaders are like, come on, please, Jesus. <laughs> We've got this thing in our community, we call them armor bearers. You guys ever heard of this? So we pull some people aside that we think might become small group leaders in the future. We're like, hey, you can lead without the title. You can bring people to small group without being a small group leader. Come on. All right, you can pray, you can fast, you can do your devotions. How about you do your leadership training and become a small group leader? How about you go on a missions trip? How about you consider the Chi Alpha internship? If you don't, why don't you support someone that's doing the Chi Alpha internship? If you graduate and you make bank and God has called you to make money, listen, God does that. He calls you to make money. Some people are like, I volunteer for that job. You should try to figure out how to give away 80% of your income and live on 
You should support your Chi Alpha missionaries and your missionaries overseas and your pastors in your local churches. You should live with the intention of changing the world through the gifts and the skills that God has given you. Become a marketplace minister in Alaska. I'll just say that. All right. Or go become a missionary overseas. All right. Moving on. I'm way over time, guys. Holy cow. The last story, we're going to read it as fast as we can without any disrespect. Chapter 25, verses 1 to 13, it says, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise, for when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. And as the bridegroom's was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him in the marriage feast, and the door was shut. And afterward the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. I would love to spend 20 minutes trying to help you unpack the marriage uh, ceremony of this day. I'm going to do it in 20 seconds. Essentially, the way someone got married was a man uh, got a contract with a young lady. He would go over to the young lady's house, and they would have a small ceremony together. And then, usually in the evening, he would take this bride across town to his house, and which there would then be a big party that could last up to seven days. Now, there were not uh, streetlights, right, cars and those kind of things. And so what would happen is, is in the community, there would be young women. Now, we get hung up on this word virgin. Basically, these are just like bridesmaids, okay? So like that's part of the culture that was part of who was eligible to be part of this context in this moment. And the idea was is that they would light the way and bring the community together all along as the procession came to the house where the husband was going to celebrate this new wedding feast. You guys got it with me? And these young ladies, it was kind of like a rite of ceremony, and part of it was is that they were being Oh, let's, how do you put this? Uh, they were being advertised is the wrong word. They were basically uh, saying, I'm available, right? And so their hopes and futures of marriage, some of you have been doing that this weekend, like, hey, what's up? Um, I'm available. And so this is a part of their significance in their community and their future, and there's some things that we can learn from this. Jesus is telling this story against to his disciples, and this is the big takeaway. He's simply wanting his disciples to be prepared for what God has. Um, my son, uh, number three, his name's Axel. He's 14. Last year, he was in eighth grade, and he participated in the uh, academic pentathlon. Now, we don't know what the academic decathlon is, but the pentathlon, he's kind of like the sleeper middle kid. You know what I'm talking about? Like, he doesn't cause anybody trouble. He's just good. He kind of does everything well. But you never really pay attention to him because he doesn't cause trouble. And so you're just kind of, he's there. And he's a wonderful kid to parent. But 
He's quiet. He's just that middle child personality. And he's doing the pentathlon, and his team in Alaska did really well. I was like, this is weird. Smart people taking tests. Okay, this is academic sports events, I guess. And, and he goes all day and takes tests. And their team did well. They finished first in the state. And I was like, wow. And my son like finished second in two of the uh, different uh, academic areas and third in another. I was like, hey, what's up, smart kid? Good job, pat him on the back. Well, they earned a spot to go to the national academic pentathlon, right? Because they were first in, this, in the state. And so they go to the national, which means they get on computers and take tests, right? They don't go anywhere. And they take these tests. And, and I'll be honest, like, Alaska's not known for, like, smartness. <laughs> think of Alaska, you think of, there you go. All right. And so my expectations of a loving father is that they would finish in the top 50, okay? <laughs> and they take their tests, and to make a long story short, they finished fourth in the nation. And I am dumbfounded. And I get the test back and he finished fifth in the nation in one subject, fourth in the nation in another subject. And I'm just like, like what, Crystal, what are we doing? Like this kid, he needs to go to a real school. Like <laughs> we're ruining his future, <laughs> right? And I'm talking to my son, I'm patting him on the back. I'm like, I'm so proud of you, way to go, and encouraging him. And he gets this little smile on his face. And he goes, Dad, I just wish I would have finished reading the book. <laughs> and I looked at him and I'm like, excuse me? If you don't know what this is, they basically get five subjects, five different books or areas to study, and then they take tests. And he goes, yeah, I didn't even finish the books. And I was like, man, like, <laughs> have you ever studied for a test and you've not been prepared? Okay, I'm the only one, all right. Apparently my son doesn't need to, right? Like it doesn't matter for him, but Jesus is telling this story about these 10 young ladies. He wants them to be prepared. Here's what you need to understand, that the wise, they were waiting and expecting Jesus. They were in a place that they would encounter Jesus and they were prepared to go with Jesus. This is really good. They were waiting and expecting. They were in a place that they would encounter him. Some of you are like, I don't feel Jesus. Stop going to the bar. He's not there. Okay, I guess it's just me. All right. And they were ready to go with him. The foolish... They didn't really want to be there. You guys get this. They expected other people to prepare, other people's preparation to help them. I refer to these people as parasite Christians. Some of you need to start doing your own devotions and stop living off of your Chi Alpha service and your small group leaders' lessons. Man, I'm, I'm on fire today. <laughs> They expected to have time to do it later, and they expected to be able to get a second chance. But they didn't. So what's the takeaway for us? For us, I would say we need to live with an attitude of expectation. We talked about that last night. 
We need to place ourselves in a position to encounter God. That means you hang out with godly people. It means that you go to small group, you're in large group, you're investing in those relationships. Guys, I, you are who you spend time with. Your destiny is where you spend your time. Get rid of the things that will hold you back. Work through sin in order to sanctify your life because those will become distractions that when Jesus shows up, you'll realize you don't actually have any oil. Make preemptive decisions. This is like a drum I beat all the time at our community. I call them preemptive decisions. It's just a word. I don't know if it has actually any meaning. You could refer to this as being a prepper. Make decisions before you have to make decisions. Establish a trip plan. Set up guardrails in your life with your relationships, with your occupation, with your walk with Jesus. Basically what this means is that I would say I have made decisions that I will not be alone with a person of the opposite sex because I will never have an affair with my life. That is a preemptive decision so that when I'm in a position with a pretty young girl that wants to have a relationship with me and we're alone, I don't have to make that decision. That decision was made when I was here at the altar, when my mind was in the right place, when my heart was in the right place. Guys, you have opportunities to make decisions for the rest of your life, and I hate to break this to you, the older you are, the smaller they get, like it says this, right? Make decisions now that protect your future with Jesus. And lastly, I would just say this, are you anxious to meet Jesus? Are you waiting with anticipation to go with him, or are you ready to go wherever he wants to lead you? And I have the worship team come um, back, and I just... This evening, or this morning, man, I'm sorry, guys. It is early in Alaska. I woke up this morning to pray for our time, and it was like 1 a.m. Alaska time. It's 6.30 a.m. right now in Alaska. I don't really have, like, a clear altar request other than this to tell you that Jesus is concerned about your life. And his greatest concern for you is that you would be with him. Your community, your culture, your family, your peers at college, they're dependent upon your authenticity with him. Jesus wants you to be authentic. He wants you to walk with him, to love him, to know him. And when you are authentic, the world will see and come and want to know Jesus too. You need to steward your life. Recognize the value, the opportunity, the gift that you've been given. Steward it well. You have so much ahead of you. I had the epiphany a few years ago that I'm pretty much half done. And I stepped back and I looked at my life and I go, I don't know, I don't know if I've stewarded it as well as I'd hoped. And it gave me an opportunity to say, no, no, I need to maybe shift a little bit, maybe make some different investments so that those investments will reap not just an earthly reward, but an eternal one.
and then recognize that the preparation, preparation to be with Jesus should not be avoided. I've shared this at least three or four times today, but listen, in the Bible, there is a constant connection between men and women that God uses and has a special relationship with with two different things. I did a study kind of looking at scripture. What are the connections that God chooses to engage and use specific people in the Bible? Number one is humility. And number two is the unwillingness of that person to avoid preparation. So you look at a guy like Moses, who's the Bible says is the most humble man. He spent 40 years in the wilderness before he spent 40 years in the wilderness. Joseph in the coat of many colors, right? This guy that got sold into slavery spent 13 years as a slave and in prison before he led the land of Egypt. And you can go down the line and I will just guarantee you as you look at people in scripture, you will recognize that the preparation, the time, the investment that you put into your relationship with God will be multiplied as you humbly sit with him. I'm gonna ask you to stand. They're gonna lead us in worship. And the altar time, the altars are open. I think we've got at least 10, 15 minutes or something like that. Um, And I would just encourage you to come in to talk to Jesus. Perhaps you are struggling with authenticity right now. Do not let the devil accuse you. Hear me in this. There's a difference between condemnation and conviction. Conviction draws you to Jesus. Condemnation shoves you away from him. Jesus does not condemn. He convicts which brings you to him, okay? Do not wrestle with this idea of authenticity and let it drive you away from God. Let it draw you to him, okay? Some of you need to to deal with preparation, like how are you gonna do? And some of you need to look at your life and deal with the stewarding of that. Jesus, I just ask in the next few minutes as we lift you up in praise and in worship, God, that this community that is here today will continue to engage you, Lord God, that we would uh, not just uh, revel in the moment and the emotion, but we would also be able to put feet to the things that we've learned and the things that we know. And Lord Jesus, we would step forward in this, knowing that you have great concern for our lives and that concern is that you want to be with us. Jesus, help us, oh God. Help us to walk this life knowing the joy, knowing the peace, knowing the love, In your precious name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Chi Alpha at the University of Virginia podcast. For more information, you can visit our website, xaatuva.com.